Well, this morning we continue in our sermon series called The Coming of a Kingdom, looking at the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel chapter 3 presents a key facet of what it means to follow Jesus with our life, hearing and responding to God. 1 Samuel chapter 3 is all about communication and thinking on that subject. I was recognizing this week that many of us have experienced an evolution of communication during our lifetime. I don't know if you've ever found yourself thinking, what did we ever do before self-hold of each other? How did we ever meet up at places? How did we ever find directions? How did we ever access information? Remember back in the day, the day of landlines, when the only way that you could get a hold of someone is if you were sitting right there by the phone. I remember in high school, uh, calling on a landline, a girl, to ask her out. And with great fear and trepidation in my heart, I knew I was going to have that awkward conversation with her mom or dad who answered the phone as I asked to speak to so-and-so. Just FYI, I got turned down in that particular call. But then there was a revolution, the answering machine. All of a sudden, we could leave messages for one another. And when we get home from wherever we had been, we would hit play. We would hear the message we would be able to call the person back hoping that they would be sitting by their landline. But then there was a, a revolution beyond that, and that was call waiting, that you could actually be talking to somebody on the landline. Instead of a busy signal, you could click over and answer a second call. My senior in high school, I was the proud owner of a lawn care business. Clients could get a hold of me on my pager. And of course, whenever someone paged me, I had to pull over on the side of the road, take a quarter out of the console in my truck and call them back on a payphone. <laughs> During the summer of my sophomore year, I lived in Minsk, Belarus, and I remember traveling 20 minutes across town to a neighborhood to visit an internet cafe because I had begun dating Amanda and I would pay money to use the computer and with bated breath, hope that Amanda had sent me an email miles and miles away. Now, almost every day or every other day, uh, I get a FaceTime uh, call from my oldest daughter who's in college in Washington, D.C. And because of that technology, it almost feels as if she's never left. And maybe it's because my undergrad was in communication, but this story just brought to mind all sorts of communication patterns that are going on here between Eli and Samuel, God and Israel. And I don't know if you've ever read stories like this or stories of famous saints and you've said to yourself, man, it doesn't work like that but with me and God. I mean, how does that happen for people? Or maybe you've been around others in the church who frequently say things like, I heard from God the other day. And you're thinking, what, did he, did he call? Did he text you? Like, how exactly did it happen? How are we certain that we too can hear from God? How are we certain that we too can hear from God? Now, there's some who would read 1 Samuel chapter 3 and say this was a particular time in ancient Israel, an anointed uh, individual in this anointed season. This doesn't really have anything to do with our communication today. Then on the other hand, there are some people who look at this text and they would instantly jump to three sh uh, surefire ways 
uh, to enjoy conversation with the Lord. Well, I want to suggest this morning that this is not an either or, but a both and because of where this story leads us. And we're going to take three steps this morning. First, we're going to capture the main idea of 1 Samuel 3. And then if we see the, the main idea of 1 Samuel 3, it will lead us to the main idea of Scripture. And then we see the main idea of Scripture. It's going to lead us to the main idea of the gospel and some practical implications for our life. So we begin with the main idea here in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. We continue to see that God's light is emerging from this darkness in Israel. 1 Samuel is set in the context of the judges of Israel. You might remember that after the great exodus, Israel finally arrived in the promised land and they settled in. God was dwelling among his people in the tabernacle, ministering through them uh, to them through the priesthood. Israel's faith would at times falter, and every time it did, God would rescue his people through a judge or this ruler. And it gave evidence that God would never stop being faithful to his people. We know from chapter 1 and 2 that the priesthood under Eli and his sons had, been, had become corrupt. And yet, amidst this story, we find Samuel, the miraculous son of Hannah, the one dedicated to priestly life, the little boy in the white linen robe. And at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, this boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. In a sense, he was Eli's apprentice. Read it again. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. This is a communication breakdown. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. Eli's eyesight is dimmed. He's not necessarily in the inner portion of the temple. But the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. We begin to see an important principle here. That what's true of the priest is true of Israel. What's true of the priest is true of Israel. And we find here in these early verses of chapter 3 a double entendre of hope. Eli is sleeping elsewhere in some sort of temple annex. But Samuel is sleeping in the presence of the Lord inside the tabernacle. The text says where the ark of God was, but that sleeping in the most holy portion, the holy of holies of the temple. And that's because with reference to the lamp, it probably means that Samuel was sleeping in the exterior portion of the tabernacle, where the menorah was located. And part of the priestly assignment was to maintain the wicks of the menorah which would be replaced before bedtime. They would burn through the night, and they would have to be replaced in the morning. So the text is telling us that it was in the middle of the night because the candles had not yet burned out. But it's also telling us that because Samuel was resting in the presence of the Lord, God's lamp, God's light for Israel had not gone out. Three times, <clears throat> the Lord calls out to Samuel. 
And all three times, Samuel thought it was his mentor, Eli, calling him. And maybe the first time, Eli was disgruntled, being woken up. Maybe the second time, Eli thought it was maybe Samuel had had a bad dream. And he's trying to figure out how to send Samuel back to bed. But the third time, Eli recognized that it was God speaking to Samuel. And that's probably because years earlier in Eli's lifetime, before the, te- the priesthood had become corrupted, Eli knew how to recognize the voice of the Lord. Perhaps God had come to him in just such a way. So he instructs Samuel on how to reply. So Samuel's ready. And then God comes and speaks a fourth time. But it says that the Lord came and he stood there. <laughs> like before it was just an audio, audible voice. But now God is standing there. Whatever that means. And he says to Samuel, who's now equipped by Eli on how to reply. Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. And what follows is that God shares with Samuel that he's bringing an end to the priesthood of And as you might imagine, with great trepidation, Samuel has to then go and report this to Eli. And whether it was apathy or resigned obedience, Eli accepts the word of the Lord that was given to Samuel. Then in verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 1, it says, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So we find at the beginning of chapter 3, Samuel is looking up to Eli. He's working under Eli as a mentor. But by the beginning of chapter 4, Samuel has supplanted Eli. Samuel's influence is widespread throughout Israel. He has a reputation of faithfulness. And therefore, he's restored the integrity of the temple at Shiloh. And then we find the main idea of this chapter in verse 1 of chapter 4. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And therefore... The word of Samuel came to all Israel. What's true of the priest is true of the people. And all of Israel ever doubted that God could speak to them. Their neighbor would say, no, no, my friend. Remember, we have Samuel. This main idea of this chapter, it secondly leads us then to the main idea of Scripture. The problem with a faithful prophet priest like Samuel is that he eventually dies. And who knows what the next priest will be like. And most of the time in ancient Israel, Israel would simply lose their way again. And so what Samuel ultimately reveals is that we need a permanent, fixed, forever prophet priest who can guarantee relationship with God. And the main idea of scripture is that we have just such a person in Jesus. And let me proof text this just for a a moment. Just giving you three texts from the New Testament. 
First, from John chapter 12. This is Jesus reflecting on his relationship with his father. He says, the father who sent a commandment about what to say and what to speak. The word of the Lord given to Jesus. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. So the word of the Lord is guaranteed to us in the person of Christ. And so in that transfiguration story, you might remember the disciples were gathered there at Mount Tabor. They were beholding the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the glory of all of heaven. Luke chapter 9 says, A cloud came. And overshadowed them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Because he is alone. He is the son of God. He is the chosen one. And so it only makes sense that after his death and resurrection, as we find out in those early chapters of Acts, that he ascends to the right hand of God in heaven. We find in Hebrews chapter 7 this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our permanent, fixed, forever prophet, priest. The ultimate high priest. The kind of priest that we always needed as human beings. Jesus made it possible for the word of the Lord to reach not only Israel, but the nations And if any of us have ever doubted that God speaks to us today, let us say to one another, no, no, my friend. Remember, we have Jesus. I was at a gathering this week and I was talking with someone that I haven't seen in probably six years. They kind of remembered my story and who I was. And they said, so are, are you still like leading worship or pastoring that church? And with a heart filled with gratitude, I said, yes, uh, I'm still doing what I was doing when I knew you six years ago. I haven't gone anywhere. My kids have just gotten a little older. Nothing in my life has really changed. And after Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, he ascended to heaven to become our forever high priest. And the good news is, is that since then, Nothing has really changed. He's right where we left him in those early chapters of Acts. Reigning in heaven. Interceding for us. That's the main idea of scripture. Is that Jesus has restored this living, breathing, dynamic relationship between God and humanity. Now that leads us thirdly to the main idea of the gospel. That we can have this living, breathing life with God. And let me suggest three things for the sake of us following Jesus together. First, 
The only thing keeping God from speaking into your life is your own resistance. The only thing keeping God from speaking into your life is your own resistance. And I find this in Daniel chapter 3. In verse 13 and 14, we find God's word to Samuel speaking of Eli. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. And we read that and we think, whoa, that sounds really harsh. The punishment of Eli's house for their iniquity is forever. It's not going to be expiated, which means forgiven by a sacrifice or an offering. What have they done to deserve such judgment? Well, Eli and his sons, they were the high priest. They were around God all the time. They knew that Israel's destiny was a living, breathing relationship with Yahweh. But instead, they just simply wrote God off. God had provided the means to atone for every sort of wrong that could be committed in the life of an Israelite. And even the priest. But how could they experience transformative grace if they reject the giver himself? It would be like wanting water to come out of your faucet without an account at the water bureau. It just doesn't make sense. Jesus speaks of this. It's kind of an echo of this reality in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus calls this the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is an ultimate resistance to God and his voice in your life. The only thing keeping God from speaking into your life is your own resistance. And if the word of the Lord comes to us through Jesus, it is paramount that we trust his voice. And maybe this morning you've sensed his voice. Maybe you've sensed the Holy Spirit pressing in to your soul, knocking on the door of your heart. And let me tell you, all you need to do is surrender is to surrender to that voice. This also means that there's nothing in our life, nothing that we've done, nothing that that we've left undone that will prevent God from speaking to you. This isn't about what we've done for God in order for him to speak to us. If we have Jesus, it means that we are guaranteed the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, God graciously instituted this sacrificial system in order to remove any and all relational barriers so that he could commune with his people. And this ultimately is true for us in Christ. Like Samuel, Jesus is the righteous one residing in that true, holy, and heavenly temple because we can't count on our righteousness. We are the unrighteous ones. And like those Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus has once and for all dealt with every one of our sins, every mistake, every source of shame, every bad decision. And so it's all about Jesus. In the high priestly work of Christ, our prayers are always heard by God. 
And God is forever speaking to us. Secondly, let me suggest from 1 Samuel chapter 3 that liturgy is the atmosphere of God's voice. Liturgy is the atmosphere of God's voice. Now that term liturgy, it might be a term new to you, but it's a Greek word that originally meant a public work performed for the greater good of society. And that's what worship is here on Sunday morning. We're walking through a liturgy in order that we might leave this place and glorify God in culture. And I've been pulling on this thread recently, not for any other reason other than the captivating centrality of the tabernacle in the story of 1 Samuel. I'll be the first to note the importance of reading and praying and meditating on our own. I'll be the first one in line to tell you that it's, it's really wonderful to join a discipleship group with other people. But I sense that American Christians have leaned so much into individualized practice that we've lost a sense of what's happening when we come together in worship. And I can't shake this image of Samuel resting in the presence of God within the tabernacle. And he lay there on the floor. And the light of the menorah flickered through the night. And that light was cast from the lamp and it fell upon the 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying that God's light was always falling on Israel. And that same light, it it danced across the gold threads of this massive blue curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And in that reflection, Samuel and the priests like him would be reminded of God's covenant with Abraham, that he would make a great nation out of then sons and daughters like stars in the sky. Incense floated perpetually into the air, carrying, as it were, the prayers of Israel. And in that most holy place, the presence of God filled the space around the Ark of the Covenant and was ever so sacramentally connected to his word, the Ten Commandments inside that box, and his miracles, Aaron's budding rod, and his bread that came from heaven. The manna of the ex and the liturgical atmosphere of the temple that Samuel found rest for his body and it was his soul. And he was in the right sort of position then to hear from the Lord. Augustine, in his great work Confessions, says this, A body by its weight tends to move toward its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards, a stone downwards, of weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured under water is drawn up to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. This is profound. Our intended position is a living, breathing relationship with the Lord. And our liturgy here on Sunday morning helps our restless hearts rediscover that intended position 
and order that position so that we can rest our hearts in Christ. And what better gift to the world than being that kind of person? Last, 1 Samuel chapter 3, it teaches us that listening to God takes practice. You know, Samuel couldn't immediately recognize the voice of the Lord. Who's calling me? He asked. Is that, is that Eli? Is that a dream? But ultimately he learned, oh, that's what the voice of the Lord sounds like. And as we follow Jesus through the years, we come to understand the sound of the Lord's voice. But it's in scripture that we can find it every single time. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, All scripture is in full for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, how to be a righteous sort of person, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So this is really good news for all of us, because as we read scripture by ourselves, or we hear it here in the liturgy on Sunday morning, in the call to worship, in the songs that we sing, or as we pray through the daily lectionary during Wednesday morning prayer, we grow in our ability to hear the voice of the Lord. We also see that Samuel and Eli needed one another. They needed to practice together, so to speak. Now, you can practice trumpet by yourself, but the instrument really comes alive in the orchestra. Samuel was young in his faith, Eli was old and remorseful, yet neither could hear from God incidentally without the other. Eli would say to Samuel, the Lord is speaking to you. That's what his voice sounds like. And here is how you should respond. And Samuel reluctantly shares with Eli what God had said. But that's exactly what Eli needed to hear. As Jesus ministers to us, we will get a sense that he's speaking to us. As we read our Bible, as we take a walk through our neighborhood, as we worship together, and as we sojourn with one another, it is helpful that we discern the voice of the Lord together so that we can say, yes, that's the voice of the Lord, the voice of the pizza that you ate last night. We use a, a tool around, uh, around here at Oaks called the Learning Circle. You've probably seen it several times here. It's one of my favorites. That top line, we're walking through the timeline of life, but then God speaks to us in some way. And we enter in, we, we kind of pull off the exit ramp, so to speak, and on that first side of the circle, we're beginning to discover what God is saying to us. And then right there in the middle, we, we discover that we're having this encounter with Christ. But then on the other side of that circle, we're sharing that with other people who help us discern the voice of the Lord. And the potential here is that as we follow and hear the voice of the Lord, we have the opportunity to follow God into a new trajectory for our life. That's what Samuel was doing on behalf of Israel. But if we ignore his voice, we simply maintain the status quo. Just like the difference between those two trajectories is growth. Tying it all together, the only thing keeping God from speaking into your life is your own resistance. Secondly, liturgy is the atmosphere of God's voice. 
And third, listening to God takes practice, especially as we do it together. The word of the Lord comes to us through Jesus, our eternal high priest. Let me pray. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your son. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God in glory, everlasting. Amen.